Hello, this is Tom Slater, Deputy Editor at Spiked. And before we get into this episode of the podcast, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of our readers and listeners, and especially those of you who support us by donating to us monthly or whenever you can. Without you, we simply wouldn't be here. So thanks to them. And if you don't already give, please do consider giving a one-off donation or even better, becoming a monthly donor. All you have to do is go to spiked-online.com Click on the donate button on the top right of the homepage and give whatever you can. It is all greatly appreciated. Now, back to the podcast. In this episode, I speak to Michael Brendan Doherty, senior writer at National Review, about the populist revolt on both sides of the Atlantic and why we must defend the nation state. Spurious claims these past few weeks that Cambridge Analytica, a supposedly shady consulting and data firm, swung both the US presidential election and Britain's EU referendum, reminds us just how desperate many are to explain away the populist revolts of 2016. The idea that pink-haired data geeks or Russian troll armies are what won it for Trump and vote leave seems to be comforting to those in the elite who have had such huge blows dealt to their authority and right to rule. But all these months on, with ballot box uprisings springing up across Europe, what can we make of this populist surge? Where is it heading? And why is it important to defend it against an elite hoping to defame it? To explore these questions, I spoke to Michael Brendan Doherty, senior writer at National Review at the National Review offices in New York City. So, Michael, we're here to talk about the kind of current political moment as far as populism, this revolt against technocracy, the kind of revolt against the revolt against technocracy. But I thought a good place to start would be this Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, which has completely kind of taken over the news cycle, both in Britain and the US. What do you make of this? Is this some sort of um, sinister plot which has managed to take both of our democracies hostage? Or is it something a little more simple than that? Uh, I think the explanation for the outsized reaction to the story is still this feeling among many in the elite in Britain and the United States that somehow Brexit and Donald Trump are illegitimate and unexplainable results that they in some way offend the laws of history which bend towards justice as we're we're told. And so there's this kind of desperate rush to find an outside factor that you know makes it illegitimate. And in Cambridge Analytica, they have this whistleblower, Chris Wiley, who it's just not – he's just not very impressive. I mean he seems to have – while he was working for Cambridge Analytica, he seems to have offered his services to the Remain campaign and they rejected him and it seems some Lib Dems rejected his offer of services. And uh, you know a lot of this is just that people don't understand computers and they have this ill – at ease feeling about them uh, for some understandable reasons that these corporations are spying on them. But I mean basically the Cambridge Analytica was a, a basically an advertising startup that was using a lot of snake oil digital words to raise money from rich Americans, you know, that they do psychographic profiles and can manipulate, you know, reality. I mean this is just – this is internet advertising and they abused – what were Facebook's very um, permissive permission structures to suck in data from the friends of people who they had convinced to take some survey. Um, but, you know, the Obama campaign had done – convinced about a million people to hand over the keys to their accounts essentially and from there built up 
you know, what they call sucking in the whole social graph of Facebook and engineered interactions between friends. You know, four years ago, people were bragging about how great this technology was, that it could bring about the election of Obama and they could reassemble this coalition of the future using all the same techniques. So there's just kind of this offense that uh, Cambridge Analytica would do this for the other side, you know, in, in these ongoing kind of cultural battles. And on that point, because there, there does seem to be a huge amount of double standards here, yeah. um, you know, in relation to what the Obama campaign did, um, and also just a lot of kind of hysteria in relation to how supposedly nefarious someone like Cambridge Analytica actually is. Do you think that the elites at this point, are they being kind of just genuinely kind of duplicitous? <laughs> or is it that they're so rattled at the moment that they all want to kind of fly off the handle at the kind of slightest provocation? I think it's a mix of both. And I think, you know, individuals have their own, you know, admixture of genuine panic versus genuine cynicism. You know, some of this is also just being scandalized, right? Like um, there's just this general association that Silicon Valley technology companies are these young places that attract young workers and this is the coalition of some bright, centrist, corporate liberal future that's going to give us all gifts forever. And in fact, over the last – since 2012 to 2016 – you know, the average age of the user of Facebook climbed up dramatically and younger people were using other technologies like Snapchat and and things like that. And so, yes, the political – when you look at the political impact of Facebook, it's going to skew towards some older voters and those voters were more likely to back Brexit and more likely to back Donald Trump. So I think there's some kind of like, you know, whining that in fact these tools aren't necessarily just used by what they view as the, the glorious future, but they're used by people in the present now. I want to kind of get into the subject of populism, mainly because it's broadly speaking by both people on the left and the right, or at least the kind of mainstream, is a sort of boo word. And yet you're someone who's quite interesting as far as you're, if not kind of a populist, at least understand it on some level and a bit more sympathetic to what's going on. So I just want to kind of get a sense of your position on what populism is and what this current wave represents as opposed to the very kind of dark image that we're given from most people some of the time. Yeah, I think a lot of it is that you're right. Populism is a word that people just use for what they don't like. I mean, what I think really is underneath this trend is that after the Cold War, foreign policy elites kind of acting in this vacuum left by the the Soviet bloc and in this this age of new possibilities, they set about and they thought, well, the future is ever freer movement of people, goods, and capital across borders. In a way, what they were doing is they were withdrawing issues like trade and immigration from democratic deliberation and like pulling them into this category almost of human rights and making them unquestionable. And I think what now is what we call the populist moment in a sense is this effort by democratic peoples to return these subjects to democratic deliberation. And in doing so, right, and this is democratic peoples, they usually – they often talk of terms of sovereignty. I mean that was what nationalism was 100 years ago, right? was the idea of we can only have effective popular sovereignty if we have a sovereign nation state. And so you do see this pull against transnational institutions or, you know, further integration of the EU. If – History basically depoliticizes our, our our world, then it's not offering political freedom. And so they are pushing back. And yeah, of course, there are ugly sides to it. 
And I mean, I have never been shy about saying that I find some of what Donald Trump says to be racist. Similarly, I find Corbyn and other kind of figures that may be populist on the left, I think they say things that are crazy and indefensible. But that partly, I accept that in some way as someone who has a place for democracy in my view of, of how politics should work. You know, it's popular expressions are not going to be these, you know, refined, polished, um, you know, little syllogisms that are exchanged in a salon. They're, they're shouted into the salon from outside. So they're, they're going to have this nasty little, little thing to it. That's, that is both the, the glory and, and the, the horror <laughs> that's kind of baked into democracy. I want to move on to the kind of American situation in a second, but just to focus on Europe, because one of the striking things, and I know you yourself have written about this, which is that so far, at least, the populist revolt has predominantly kind of brought low the centre left, you know, social yeah. the old parties of social democracy are in dire straits across Europe, the British Labour Party being the only one that's kind of bucking the trend for quite specific and strange reasons, I tend to think. Um, why is that, do you think? Why is it that despite the fact that in many ways the parties of centre-left and centre-right are pretty similar in most places in Europe, that it feels like the centre-left have been the ones who have been most kind of discredited or the most sort of, you know, beaten down by this moment? I think it's, I mean, I think it was because many of them saw this immediate success in the, immediate post-Cold War era in the 90s, they had success. I mean, Tony Blair won labor victories that were kind of unheard of uh, in 1997. And countries seemed to be getting richer. And so people were locked into this mode of thinking. But at the same time, by doing that, they were in effect choosing, you know, to culturally align themselves with the young, the single, the urban, the, you know, the racial or sexual minority. And often, in a way that seemed hostile to the the former kind of labor voter, former Reagan Democrat voter in the United States, in a sense denigrating his family home as a kind of den of tyranny, right? Like, I mean, it used to be, right, in the United States particularly, you would have left populist politicians talk about how, you know, the glory of America was this idea of every man a king, because he owns his own home, he is in control of his own life, he's in some way sovereign. And in a way, what the, the center left did in the 90s is kind of portrayed every home a tyranny. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's that's um, blighted by its heteronormativity, its bland cultural whiteness and, and boring life. And so naturally, a lot of people felt alienated from this. And these labor parties, in a sense, have ceased functioning as um, vehicles for the economic interests of working people and then add on to it a kind of layer of cultural hostility. Of course, you know, figures like Farage in England and Marine Le Pen in France might become attractive, right, who promise both to in some ways honor traditional culture and, you know, bring back popular sovereignty and bring back some sense of control. So I don't know why it's particularly afflicted the center left uh, in this way. I mean, those are kind of my my reasons and my guesses just and observations. I think it could affect the center right too. I mean, in a way it has in, in, in the United States, just to shift, Donald Trump's rise was a repudiation of Bushism in just the same way that Macron in France is a repudiation of Sarkozy or um, the rise of these populist parties in Italy 
and elsewhere. And on that point, and kind of to shift to the US for a second, because one thing that I think is not always appreciated, certainly from the outside, is that Trump, in rising to the presidency, basically destroyed both parties in spirit, if not electorally. Um, do you th- think that both the Republicans and the Democrats kind of in turn are anywhere near coming to terms with that? Or is the figure of Trump, because he's so outrageous and at times abhorrent, that they can almost expend all their energy on him and not actually take a long look in the mirror? Is it? Yeah, I, th- I do think reality of Trump's victory hasn't quite set in. And on the Democratic side, it's launched this wave of hysteria. I, I do think I would caution listeners that in uh, the 2018 midterm elections, you may see a big wave of Democrats. But as far as building a national coalition, Trump did what, you know, what Republicans never in a sense thought to do, which was win um, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, right? And these states that were deindustrializing. You know, Republicans thought they could compete opportunistically, but in a way, the theory during the George W. Bush years was, uh, let's let's make inroads with Hispanics and make Arizona a lock forever, and make inroads in California again, and turn that that state red again, maybe someday. And instead, they won what Michael Moore called the Brexit states. So it, it has scrambled the map. Um, Republicans have not reconciled it themselves to it on a policy level. They're still trying to pass the kind of bills they would have passed before Trump and Trump is signing them for the most part, the tax cut bill. And I think he may have trouble from it. Um, The Republican Party is dying and the Republican Party is yet to be born in the future. And on the point of Trump and in going into 2018, it's, you know, quite likely that he could get a bit of a bit of a pacing or at least a bit of a bloody nose because i mean the thing to always remember about trump is that despite the fact um it was this unprecedented election wing he is deeply unpopular and he is a quite imperfect vessel to say the least yeah. for this kind of populist rage I read a piece of yours recently where it was talking about how much he had kind of u-turned on so much that he stood for and i think you said something to the effect of the fact that he has pivoted so much away from what it was he said he would do the fact that he is so incoherent and isn't really going to make that much difference to the lives of the people who voted for him is almost a measure of his voters' powerlessness. I could want yeah. to expand upon that. Just right. So, I mean, listen, the the presidency of the United States, you know, basically you're talking about installing a, a person in this office and then he's in charge of a federal bureaucracy in the executive branch that is more than the population of several states combined. We're talking millions of people. He has to hire essentially a layer of almost 5,000 people and put them into positions in charge of these bureaucracies and then those people are supposed to theoretically execute the policies of the presidency and the laws of the country as passed by Congress. That is a very big operation and the fact that he didn't have the full support of the Republican Party meant that Many posts are unfilled. Many top diplomatic posts are still unfilled. And Trump lacks the the personal discipline and will to impose his vision on the Republican Party. I mean in a sense he almost expects Fox News and, and other media outlets to do it for him and it doesn't quite work that way. So in a sense he's been trapped in, in – into passing a pre-existing Republican agenda. I, there's a lot of of room for disillusion and disappointment, and I 
And that is one possible ending of this story, right, is that Trump – Trumpism in a sense – comes onto the stage of American politics and is slaughtered by the system that surrounds it and his voters have to slink off and settle for the next fam uh, the next member of the Bush family to run I mean, you know and the next member of the Clinton family to run and and also I mean in some ways there's just so much confusion among the the elites right I mean I've I, I'm 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 lucky cuz I'm in one of these middle positions where as a journalist, sometimes I'm invited into these elite kind of backroom conferences and listen to the the foreign policy mandarins of the past 20 years talk about this populist moment. And they're often confused by it uh, or enraged by it. I mean I heard a, a very senior figure in British politics who's kind of lost everything in this populist moment. Um, in practically raging, you know that uh, you know that populist politics is failing. It needs to be seen to be fail, and then we need to come in and fix it. Um, and there's very little acknowledgement that the last 15 years, where they had kind of their moment in time, the Iraq War was a disaster. Libya was a disaster. The worst economic collapse since the Great Depression. There's very little sense of remorse and responsibility about these things and their effects. And on the question of kind of what unites a lot of these different revolts, it does seem that they take different forms in different places. There's left-wing populisms, there's right-wing populisms. The one thing that seems to unite them is a move back towards the nation-state. And that's one thing that, uh, despite, despite the fact we're internationalists, have always had that kind of outlook, of recognise that it's the nation-state that is really under attack because it's within the nation-state that people live and people want to make decisions. I was reading a piece of yours recently in which you made this point that if the kind of post-nationalists um, don't kind of get their head around that the nation state is important and that people need it, then that could in a way unleash kind of far darker forces than supposedly this rise of nationalism does. So I was just wondering if you could unpack that. Yeah. So I mean my theory – I mean we're kind of gesturing at it before. My theory is that in a sense liberal elites denigrate national loyalties because they want to be liberated from them. They say – they claim that they want to be internationalist, that they want to be cosmopolitan – so many of these cosmopolitans in London and New York and Washington, they only speak English. They don't they, <laughs> they don't really socialize and they always refer to their cosmopolitanism in, in terms of what restaurants they go to uh, and maybe a few friends they had at uni but not really who they live with and work with day to day. But anyway, they, they say they want to serve every man. But I, my theory is that they are like many people just selfishly motivated and want to escape any of the duties that they might have to their countrymen that kind of national loyalties impose on them. And so you see these attempts to completely derationalize the nation state and say, well, it's a vehicle for war and bigotry as if we've stopped uh, going to war in in this age of liberal empire or as if we didn't have war before the age of the nation state. I mean – and and my fear though is that you know as as edgy and as hard edged and, and sometimes even as scary as nationalism can be, I do worry that if in a sense these cosmopolitans, if they succeed in destroying the nation state as a vehicle for popular sovereignty, I think what they will get is what you had before the nation state, which is identities based on just ethnicity, tribe, and religion, and instead of a cosmopolitanism that smooths over our differences, we will get, um, uh, you know, having destroyed loyalties based on shared law and territory and history and culture, we will get um, something much worse. 
And so, and so to close on what I hope is a slightly more positive note um, is we started at the beginning by talking about how populism was a boo word. And I always think by connection, it's essentially that democracy has become a bit of a boo word for most people. Given we're at a point in history where it feels like the idea of democracy is being brought into question um, yeah. by opinion forms, why do you think it's so important that that's really brought back to the centre of politics, that popular sovereignty is something that people take very seriously and don't just see something that they have to kind of put up with? Let me put it this way. You know, if there are any, if any of the liberal elites are listening to the podcast, <laughs> I would put it this way. I would say populism, this moment, presents you with a chance to make good on your humanitarian rhetoric, right? And to make good on this idea that the common man has real dignity. That dignity is not just um, that he gets to be maintained in a barely functioning state and society and he gets to consume endless amounts of television and advertisements and internet. That dignity also includes his and her life as a political actor and democracy is where that the common man gets to be a political actor, where he gets to in, in a sense consult with the aristocracy that is common to all men. I think that's the opportunity, right? I think that's Somewhere in that is the way to, in a sense, heal what we all feel is this culture war that we feel like might somehow has all this energy pent up in it that might get out of control. I do think if if we can just restore that democratic spirit both to elites and, and to peoples, uh, the masses, I do think that there is potential for healing there, for real compromise and for really reestablishing that rich and poor you know, recent immigrant and native don't just have relationships that are purely competitive and antagonistic, but can build shared arrangements they can both invest in. And if we don't do that, I do think there, we're going to just see a withdrawal. We'll see elites trying to secede into the Davos in the skies and populists withdraw their support for, you know, the functioning of the state in their societies. So so if this is an opportune moment. Like we should we should look for what's good in this moment and what can be accomplished and I think all the tension is a sign of opportunity. You've been listening to the Spike podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast content. If and only if you enjoyed it, please do leave us a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to help Spike to continue to thrive, please do consider making a donation. Just go to spikes-online.com and click on the donate button at the top of the homepage. Thanks for listening. See you next time.